The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to the first weekly edition of Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Nathan Bell. I'm the Portfolio Manager of the Investmark Growth and Income Funds, and I'm joined today by Alex Hughes, who looks after our Small Companies Fund. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nathan. We're aiming to do this podcast weekly, and we'll talk about stocks that we think will be of interest to you. We'll also bring you our thoughts on our current portfolios and some of the changes we've made and why we've made them. But we'd really like your response as well. We'd like you to send in questions uh, to an email address I'll give you in a second. And we'd really like to hear back from you, any companies that you think uh, you'd like our opinion on or some more general investing advice or, as always, we can only provide general advice, but uh, any issues around the markets or any opinions you'd like us to provide, uh, we'd love to answer them for you. Uh, We'll mention the email address again at the end of the podcast, uh, but for now, the email address is skininthegame at investmart.com.au. So that's skininthegame, all one word, at investmart.com.au. With that, I want to steal the show for a moment and talk about what I think is probably the most important thing to most Australian investors over the past week or so, and that's been the spin-off of West Farmers and Coles. Just to go back a little bit, and apologies to people who have been watching my webinar recently where I already talked about this, but spin-offs are generally an American thing. We don't actually see a lot of them in Australia but what usually happens is a complicated uh, business with a multiple divisions often gets tired of the poor performance of a small division that isn't contributing a lot of profit, and so they spin it off. And so what you end up with is a, a parent company that remains listed on the stock market, and you end up with a much smaller business that's also now listed on the stock market. And quite typical behaviour is that because you have such large investment funds that are invested in the parent company, which is often a conglomerate, they don't have any interest in owning the really small business that gets spun off, uh, mainly because it's just too small to make any difference to their portfolio. So what happens is you have this essentially ostracised small company that's listed on the stock market, and it tends to trade down very rapidly in price as the big fund managers are selling it. Uh, they don't care about the value of the business because it's just so small. And so what this leaves is an opportunity for smaller funds or individuals to buy these stocks at a discount. Now, they're the spin-offs that tend to work really, really well because you just get this period of 12 or 18 months where the company trades in an information vacuum. And if you can work out that this is a, a stock that you want to own for the long term where now you've, for the first time you've got this business with a balance sheet that can make the investments that it needs to make with highly motivated uh, management with a, essentially a new CEO in a new business, um, it's amazing the magic can happen. And if you look at historically in the U.S., if you've actually bought all spin-offs over time, you've actually done really, really well. But the market's actually cottoned onto this, albeit fairly slowly. And over the last decade, if you look at the returns, they're, they're okay. But what it says is that usually six out of ten spin-offs work really, really well, and the other four don't do so well. So there's more onus on us now as investors to pick out the six from ten that are going to do really well. The problem you've got in Australia is you don't actually have a lot of these spin-offs. We've, been, we've seen South 32 spin off from BHP, which I, I think has gone up four times since it was spun off. Uh, in the past, we've seen companies like Trade Me get spun out of Fairfax, and now we've seen Coles get spun out of West Farmers. 
There's been one really big difference between this West Farmers and Coles situation compared to what I think are the most ideal situations uh, to make really high returns. And that is that Coles hasn't been starved of capital in the past anyway. And these are actually two really, really big independent companies now. And so they're not essentially a secret. And any fund that owned West Farmers before when it had Coles under its banner has probably kept both shares as I have in our income portfolio. So it doesn't have the typical setup. And what we also saw was in the lead up to the spin-off that the share price of West Farmers actually already increased essentially to lock in the higher return that people were expecting once the two companies were separated. So the question now is, in terms of valuation, do you want to, if you don't already own it, are these an opportunity now? Or if you do own them already, is this an opportunity to add more of the stock to your portfolio? And the way I'm thinking about this and the way it's reflected in the income portfolio, as I said, is I haven't added to either uh, stock. They're both sitting in there at fairly small holdings. But bear in mind, we also own Woolworths in the income portfolio. So if we were to add Coles, for example, then essentially we'd be adding even more to our exposure to the retail sector. And outside of grocery retailing, which has got a lot more competitive in recent years, uh, companies like Kmart and Target, uh, these are big W, these are really, really tough industries and they don't have a lot of pricing power. So I'm not particularly enthusiastic about them. The other thing is West Farmers is trading on a price to earnings ratio of around 18, while Coles is around 16, uh, and both are a bit less than Woolworths, which is around 19 or 20 times. But the reason I prefer Woolworths over the other two, and particularly Coles, is that Woolworths has already spent billions of dollars improving its distribution systems, which are the similar investments that Coles just about to make now. Now, in the jargon, people call this um, pre-capex, uh, which is basically just telling you the company has a lot of money to spend. And even though Coles is making these investments, which are very sensible and should be good for future profits, it's telling uh, shareholders it's going to pay 80 to 90% of its profits out as dividends. So what that means, if you've got this huge investment program, plus you're paying out most of your profits as dividends, there's going to be some pressure on your balance sheet. Uh, and if, if things don't work out quite as well for Coles in the future... Let's say there's a bit more pressure on margins, for example, and profits, uh, the growth slows or profits fall, uh, then it's going to have to take on more debt. And so there's not going to be any room for any more capital coming out of the company to shareholders other than the dividend, which might have to be cut. Woolworths is in completely the opposite situation. So even though you're paying a premium for Woolworths, uh, we're actually more likely to get higher dividends or uh, get a benefit from the share buyback in future. And so I'm happy at the moment to have Woolworths as the higher uh, portfolio position uh, rather than Coles in the income portfolio. I think if you're a really conservative investor and you're looking for a decent dividend and you're happy with a 7 to 8% total return, which includes the dividend and capital gains, then I think Coles might be of interest. Um, but for now, uh, they look like holds to me uh, and we're off looking for the next spin-off opportunity, which actually may come in the form of the funds management business uh, getting separated out of some of the big banks. Alex, have you got any comments on either of those companies or spin-offs in general? You made an interesting comment off-air that would West Farmers consider selling off some of the weaker businesses in its portfolio so that Bunnings could shine? Yeah, I mean, some of the other stuff doesn't seem overly attractive to me, but Bunnings certainly does. Uh, I think we're probably potentially over-retailed in Australia, and I think Big W and the Targets, Targets really suffering. Um, and Kmart's actually doing okay, but I think they're really going to struggle in the future. I mean, my wife's out there buying clothes for our kids for $2. Um, I don't know how much money they're making out of that, but um, I would hate to be working for the company that actually have to produce those goods. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the thought of going into a, a Kmart terrifies me, to be honest. So. <laughs> yeah, I used to work there, so I feel your pain. 
So the company that I want to talk about next is one that I have a small holding in our growth portfolio, but it's also a major holding in your small cap portfolio. The company is Thorn Group. It's a somewhat complicated business for a fairly small business. So before we get to the investment case, just walk us through what the business actually does. Sure. So the main part of Thorn Group is a consumer leasing business known as Radio Rentals, which has been around for about 80 years in Australia. And that helps low-income consumers purchase everyday items. Or not, I shouldn't say purchase, they don't actually purchase them. In many cases, they lease the items. Um, and so these are things like um, fridges, um, electrical equipment, household items, furniture, and, and things like that. Um, this business has about $150 million of tangible equity, and it doesn't operate with, with debt. Um, but it hasn't been operating um, to its best because it's, it's run into a number of problems starting from about 2015 and, and it's still working through those today. Um, but we're attracted to this business because it's trading at a price that we think um, compensates us for those risks. So just to unpack that in, in greater detail, um, in 2015 Thorn Group identified that it had overcharged some of its customers um, inadvertently and um, it alerted ASIC that it had done that um, and it set about rectifying the issue. So it paid some refunds, ASIC conducted an investigation and Thorn Group also paid a civil penalty as a result. And um, this issue resulted in a class action being lobbed against Thorn Group. So Thorn has actually been grappling with this issue for a number of years. But um, it's actually the largest consumer leasing business in Australia um, and there are scale benefits to this business. So. We were attracted to this business, which we thought was quite, quite strong, um, going through some difficulties and had a very low price. Um, but what's happened is that um, uh, it, it's been more difficult to work through the, the problems than perhaps we anticipated. Um, but one of the reasons why we like it is that we think even in a really dire scenario, this, we're still going to come away with an okay outcome. And, and part, of, part of the reason there is just um, due to the accounting of the leases. So... To use an example, if we go into a radio rental store today and we get a four-year lease for a furniture set, let's say, for example, and that might cost $20 a week, that means the, the consumer will pay, in rough numbers, $1,000 a year or $4,000 over that four-year lease. Now, Thorn doesn't record $4,000 as a receivable on its balance sheet. It discounts that to the present value and records that present value figure. So the discount rate is very important. Now, accounting conventions require Thorn to use the interest rate that's implicit in the lease, and in many cases that's 48%. So that $4,000 receivable that it receives in cash from customers might be on Thorn's balance sheet at $1,600. So we're buying into a business which has $150 million of equity. Um, the market cap is $80 million. Um, but if you were to put that business into runoff, it's likely that you'd, you'd receive far in excess of $150 million from radio rentals purely because that large discount rate that's applied to its leases. So it's a challenge business. It's, it's going through some difficulties, but there's immense value on offer. Um, the company's actually trying to turn the business around. It's not actually trying to put that into runoff, and it's appointed a new CEO with experience with consumer leasing businesses and he's attempting to turn it around, and we're starting to see some green shoots there, so there's, there is potential for that to work. Um, originations in the most recent half, which means new leases, were actually up about 30% or so, um, off a low base, admittedly. So there's a chance that could be turned around, and it could, we could achieve value in that way. 
But in the worst case scenario, if they have to wind that business up, um, we think there's a lot of value in that as well. And um, that's three quarters of Thorn's business. They also have another business as well, which is the remaining 25%. And there's potentially a, a lot of value there if they can sell that off in time. And is that, uh, or to explain that business for what it is quickly and why you'd actually like to see it go on? Yep, so the, the last business is the equipment finance business. So that helps small businesses um, lease um, equipment for their, for their businesses. So things like motor vehicles and exercise equipment and um, other equipment that they may use. And um, this business has grown very rapidly. Um, that the leases are held inside a securitized trust which is a bit of a confusing vehicle for many people, but what it means is that the assets are held off Thorn's balance sheet and they're non-recourse to Thorn. So Thorn's required to fund 8% of the assets inside that securitised vehicle, um, and that entitles it to receive the net interest income that it produces. And um, It's looking like this year that'll amount to about $15 million of pre-tax income. Um, and, and Thorn Group has about $40 million or so tied up um, so there, there is a lot of value on offer there. Um, we, we would like to see that sold because we don't think it has the competitive advantage that Radio Rentals has. Um, but at the current price, it looks like either no value is being ascribed to either the equipment finance business or, or there's a huge discount placed to Radio Rentals. So um, if they can sell that business, um, you know, what's $15 million of pre-tax income worth? That's, that's up for debate. Um, but if they can sell it, um, you know, there's potentially a big return to shareholders in that. So as investors looking at any business that provides credit, you should always be worried about fast-growing revenue lines. Uh, but the new CEO has essentially done a couple of good deals so far. He seems pretty sensible to minimise the risk while still getting a cut of the revenue. That's right. And there, there have been a few other announcements from some competitors which give comfort, comfort too. So Access today is a competitor for the equipment finance business, which has basically hit the skids and um, breach covenants and the lenders have, uh, it looks like they're getting close to putting that business into runoff and the other competitor is Silverchef which is in a similar situation. So some of Thorn Group's competitors are doing it very tough um, but Thorn Group recently introduced a mezzanine investor into that securitised vehicle and in simple terms what that showed us was that a third party came and verified the business and they were happy to invest. So that, that gave a lot of confidence that they had a, a close look at things and they liked what they saw. So, um, yeah, some encouraging news there and potentially a bit of a, an ear pocket with some competitors doing it tough and, and that business being able to fill that void. So certainly not a high-quality business, but we think it's a cigar butt with plenty of value. Yeah, that's right. So we're, we're aware of the risks. We think the value compensates us for that and we're, we're keeping a close eye on things. But... I'd like to stress, like it's, I feel like I talk about this business a lot. It's, it's one of um, 23 in the portfolio. So, um, yeah, we like it, um, but it's not the be-all, end-all. You know, we've got many others in the portfolio as well. So, it has that theme of a new CEO, which can often uh, transform a business in the right hands, which is something I always look for. Yeah. So the next topic is why I'm still bullish on US housing, even though it's slowing down rapidly, and what it means for some Australian listed stocks like James Hardy, for example, uh, plumbing companies, recent Reliance Worldwide. Uh, there's lots of other companies in Australia that rely on the US housing market, such as Borrell, uh, which is not a company I intend to own it. Um, never say never, but it uh, doesn't really fit the high-quality business we're generally looking for. But uh, a lot of investors will know I own James Hardy in the growth portfolio for a short period. And the reason I sold was because we were seeing these massive inflation numbers in costs 
coming through the business. And uh, it's all well and good to have good revenue growth or satisfactory revenue growth. But if your costs are going up much higher and you're not able to pass all those costs on to consumers, then it's going to crunch your margins. And I've really been looking for a replacement for a company, uh, a US listed company called NVR, which if anyone's investing overseas, it's a company you should have a look at. Uh, it's really unique in the sense it's a home builder that doesn't have a lot of debt and it's retired eight, or bought back 80% of its shares over the last 20 years. And it's been in, in, the returns from the stock have been absolutely incredible. And the reason it's been able to do that is because it doesn't pay 100% for land and then have to borrow a lot of money to buy the land and then potentially go broke during the next US, uh, down, housing downturn. Uh, but rather it just pays an option premium and because it only pays a small premium, uh, it only pays the full amount for the land when it's ready to develop. So uh, it's a very high free cash flow business, which is not what you associate with the very he very heavy asset and debt laden home builders in Australia. And I thought James Hardy was his company, but obviously it's not going to be buying back its shares in the way NVR is. And I sold it but, uh, because of the margin pressure. And I think you're going to start hearing a lot more about inflation uh, across lots of industries over the next couple of years. It's something we haven't really seen in decades. And it's funny that you look at these huge costs. Uh, we're talking about freight costs that went up 20% in 12 months for James Hardy and pulp prices went up 24%. And yet, if you have a look at the official inflation statistics, they're all about 1.5% or 2%, as though there's nothing to worry about. And I think that says more about uh, the way inflation is calculated by the governments and um, Australian Bureau of Statistics than it does actually about what's real inflation in the economy. But I am bullish on the, in the long term, and the reason is that the millennial population coming through America at the moment is the largest population cohort that America has ever had. And they're starting to move into that sort of late 20s, early 30s age group where they start buying homes. And interestingly, the reason that anything associated with US home building has really suffered lately uh, with a lot of US home builders, like half the share price they were 12 or 18 months ago, is because they're worried about the impact of higher interest rates on the demand for homes. And yet, if you go through US history, the times that have actually had some of the biggest uh, home ownership and, and new home building has been occasions where there's been high interest rates because the economy has actually been working pretty well and that's just where uh, the population has been at the time. They've just been in that area or already in that stage of life to buy homes. So I'm not actually worried about higher interest rates uh, turning off the US housing market. At the moment, uh, James Hardy is forecasting, like most people, that there'll be about 1.2 or 1.1 to 1.3 new home builds in America next year. The long-term average is 1.4. Uh, but most forecasts believe that because the millennial population is so large and once you include obsolescence for the existing housing stock, the numbers should actually be around more like 1.6 million. So all these companies that I've mentioned should actually do really well in the long term, but in the short term they might just, might just have to deal with these higher cost issues um, and I think a bit of nervousness in the, in the US housing market as interest rates go up. But uh, as I said from history, um, this is probably not a bad time to be looking at some of these stocks and and recent reliance uh, are two companies I've recently added to the portfolio. So the last topic for today is some good news. We've had a company called TradeMe, which is uh, now I think is the largest position in all of our portfolios. Uh, Alex, why don't you take us through the good news? Sure. So TradeMe is, is, is a great business. We've held it for um, the past year or so, um, or in my portfolio, and, and a bit longer in yours. Um, and it is the dominant um, online classifier in New Zealand. So it's been entrenched there for um, a number of decades now, and it's, it's a fantastic business, as most of the dominant online classified businesses are. 
And the, the fortunate news that we received was a private equity firm out of the UK lobbed a takeover bid for TradeMe at a 26% premium. Um, and so that's resulted in the share price rising and a bit more attention towards the group. There was actually a report out this morning in the AFR I read that there's a US private equity firm also considering the, um, potentially a, a bid for the business. So um, fingers crossed there's a bit more attention and we might see a higher bid or even perhaps a bidding war. Um, but um, there's no guarantees about that. This is just a bid at this stage. They are conducting due diligence and um, hopefully that results in, in a bid, um, but that um, there's no guarantees about that. The company was trading at nearly 20 times earnings when this non-binding offer came out. What do you think it is that they saw about the business, that they thought there was value in it? I think it's the dominance, really. Um, these businesses have fantastic economics when they reach market dominance, um, and that's based on the network effects that they're able to ch- achieve. I mean... Network effects, you know, if you're the first person that has a telephone, there isn't much value in that network. But as more and more people buy telephones, the value of the network grows exponentially. And and so it is with online classifieds. As more and more people visit a site, there's tremendous value there for um, businesses to list their products there. And and in turn, when there's more and more products, there's more value for the buyers to visit that site. So TradeMe's had that in spades for a long time. but it's also got a great opportunity with the classifieds that focus on the auto, the jobs, and the property segment. And there's potentially a great monetization potential there. So 20 times earnings might sound like a high multiple, but I think it's really the, the certainty over earnings growth over a long period of time, which allows people to pay prices like that and, and gives investors comfort. Um, it's a good lesson, I think, too, in being very careful. I think the price-to-earnings ratio is one of the most overused and abused financial ratios in the industry. It's just a snapshot of a subset of accounting at the time. And I think what hasn't been encapsulated in that PE ratio of 19 or 20 is that the company's had to invest very heavily over the last two or three years to fend off competition. And it's only now you're just starting to see uh, some of the fruits, the increase in profits uh, coming through from that investment. So I think today's earnings doesn't necessarily capture what the future earnings are going to look like. So investors have probably been quite frustrated by the stock I guess, over the last two or three years. It hasn't really done anything. That's right. Uh, I mean, I haven't been... Um, I've just come back to Intelligent Investor for um, over three years since I left, and the share price is basically the same. <laughs> um, but it's actually built a much better business and I think a more profitable business. And the last results that came out actually showed some things that you would probably take for granted that probably should have happened earlier. But the display advertising, which is essentially what you're using to distinguish your ads... There was only a really small increase in the number of ads, but that premium pricing they get for those premium ads meant that just a 1% or 2% increase in the number of listings was leading to a 10 or 12% increase in income. That's exactly right. New Zealand's a small market. There's not going to be a huge number of new visitors to the site, but it's that pricing power that's so valuable. And I think they're quite early in monetizing that. I think they've got many levers they can pull and be able to do so for a long period of time. So... Honestly, I'd, I'd actually rather hold trade me and not, not sell out to this private equity firm. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because that's going to be my final question. Yeah. So, I mean, part of me doesn't want this deal to go through um, because finding a business that's like it, that's priced at a, an attractive level like it was, is going to be difficult. Um, so, yeah, if, if it didn't go through, um, there wouldn't be too many tears around here, I don't think. I think it's very easy to think when you get these takeover offers and you, you make a potentially very quick 25 or 30 percent you think you've done really really well 
But if you take something like Surtex, is probably a good example, although the upside was bigger for Surtex. But they're talking about uh, that was being, I think, privatised perhaps or, or bought out at uh, like $5 a share, I think it was. Uh, I don't know how many, might have been about five or six years ago now. And that ended up becoming a $30 stock for a while and uh, went back down to 18 or $20 and then finally got bought out at, I think it was mid-20s maybe or high-20s, $28 maybe. And so if you'd have been happy on that 25% gain from $5, you would have missed out on that basically a six-bagger from there. So I think you've got to be really careful about just saying, be very thankful that you're getting a very quick 25 or 30% because you may be giving up a multi-bagger over a much longer period of time exactly. that's very tax-effective. Um, as well, because obviously selling your, biz- your stocks crystallises a tax uh, problem, if you like. So uh, I, I agree with you. It's a company we've stuck with for a very long time, and we haven't really seen the full results for the investment that's been made. So mm. I'd be happy to hold it as well. So it's only a non-binding offer at the moment, and uh, we'll see what happens. So that's the end of our first podcast. This is essentially the style it will be in the future. We'd love to hear questions from you. Um, the email address will be coming up if you've got any other comments. Uh, or stocks you'd like us to talk about, uh, please let us know. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Nathan. To learn more about the income, growth, and small companies funds, head over to investsmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investsmart.com.au.